Hi, this is Brendan Davis from Bedrock Games, and I'm here with Rob, Adam, and Nick, and we're going to do our first episode of Game Lab. Today we're talking about uh, a live stream that we did on Friday, uh, where I tried to do a dungeon that was modeled after uh, historical mouse traps and things like that. And so we're going to be covering, you know, that topic and also the topic of, of live streaming in general, because this was our first real live stream. I've done podcasts where I record a session and post them, but this was live, which I found was a totally different experience. So, um, so yeah, so I don't know. Why don't we, why don't we start since uh, uh, Adam and Rob, you guys were both there. Uh, what was your sense? Did the traps feel any different? And give your complete honest opinion. If they felt like no different at all, that's, I think, important information. Uh, I didn't specifically get a sense of them being mouse trap traps, aside from when you had the, uh, the part with the alcos where the, the, uh, the hoop things, metal hoop things came down that were literally very mousetrap like that was uh that was probably the only indication where i was like oh this is a mousetrap but uh other than that i didn't i didn't sense that in the actual traps uh that you know that's not a, a value judgment just i didn't sense it i know how about you rob um well i i ran uh nero larp event for a better part of a decade mm -hmm. and a big part of that was uh traps and puzzles and uh you know what what you ran brendan was very, very much one of the better ones i've seen mm -hmm. now the problem here is actually me in which i am not very good with traps and puzzles as you saw i pretty much brute forced when i did get involved i pretty much brute forced it with my typical mio but it's not a mo but it's not a reflection on your design you know the chinese rune one was pretty cool a little and that was the one too, that was not based on a mousetrap. There was, uh, just I so, was wondering. Yeah. I, I, I think, wow, that's As far a, that's as I know, there's no, there's no runic alphabet mousetrap out there. But, 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 I, but I thought it was interesting what you did because you uh, – so, uh, Nick, just to bring you up to speed, what uh, – you know, there's sort sure. of the, the – you know, people usually use a pole in a dungeon. And, and Rob was equipped with a fly whisk, and he had kung fu <laughs> techniques that let him wrap around people. And so – he, he used it to wrap around levers and things inside the complex, and so he was able to trigger a lot of traps with his fly whisk, um, which was like I, I wasn't anticipating, and it created some different effects because there were some traps where I had... I figured, okay, they're going to try to use a sword or a spear to trigger this, but I mm -hmm. never really imagined somebody using a fly whisk, so that was an interesting curveball. Yeah, well, I uh, I staggered my characters. You know, I was anticipating character death because we each had three characters, so we had backups. So I actually had one of my guys had a an had like an iron staff that was going to be his weapon, so it could double as my my ten foot pole. But I uh, I never actually got to that guy. But <laughs> but yeah, I, I have a question when you guys when you guys played that adventure, and and you knew that you were going to be in this adventure that was challenging you with these traps, Adam, you were just saying that you staggered your characters in a certain way. Did everybody mm -hmm. play a little bit more tentatively, or did you guys kind of go into it very robustly? Did your game style, play style change? I was definitely tentative, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, uh, I, mean I, I, I got to say, too, I, I had the malfunction of my camera not working with Hangouts, so I was kind of invisible during the session, which 
you know, not not being visible adds an extra layer of you know being a little little held back. But uh, um, but but yeah, I, I basically my, my my theory on my characters was I thought okay, if this is a a place that's guarded and has traps, I mean my first character was a swordsman. I'm like that way I can get through any guards and stuff. And then I made my characters increasingly more trap focused as as they went along, you know, anticipating things getting more less combat heavy and more trap oriented but uh as it turned out my my single guy survived the whole thing so and he was he was the character i was least excited about playing so i'm like okay he's gonna die early so i i have no emotional investment or personality this guy and then i i I got more in depth with my characters as i went so i'm like i i got too clever for my own good there but uh (laughs) i i and and confession i made a mistake during the 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 session where i forgot to check for uh encounters every 10 minutes in the complex um because you know uh, i think the pressure of the live stream i just overlooked it and that probably contributed a lot to the scenario being less lethal than it was in the i mean we still had a character death at the end and rob's character uh lost his arm but oh man but uh but we were expecting I was expecting like you know multiple deaths along the way, um, so the scenario itself was less lethal than I anticipated, and I also didn't run it as lethally as I probably should have. Um, but I think I think it was okay because the, the whole reason why I set this so and this is more on the live stream topic, but the whole reason why I wanted it lethal was I figured it's going to be more entertaining for people that don't play role playing games that are watching this to to see characters die in interesting ways. But I don't think that that really mattered. I think that the, you know, there, there, was a, there was a lot of deliberation between player, player characters and players about what to do. And at first I thought, oh, that's like got to be boring. But the more people I talked to, the more I was hearing, no, that's like fine. Like that's actually kind of interesting to just sort of, you know, watch people hash out the tactics of what they're doing. So, so I think, oh, go ahead. I, I, I think. I was going to say, I think it's a little bit interesting that your game mastering style changed because of the live stream. Oh, it definitely did. It was a deliberate choice to change it, too. Now, um, because I I knew that we were going to be doing it for an audience that didn't play role-playing games. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to do something that I thought was entertaining, but didn't radically alter the nature of the medium of role-playing so that it was still firmly in the, you know, sort of, the unpredictability of the dice are what were making it exciting. And I was just upping the lethality. So this is something I might, I might do. Like when I ran house of paper shadows, I ran it like this, like it's meant to be lethal, but it's the sort of thing I rarely do in a regular campaign. Um, and so I just made a point of emphasizing the lethal side of things, but, but yeah, you, you, you have to, I, I think, I think with live streaming and this is my first one, so I don't know the thing that, uh, that it does is, I mean, you are, you are being watched and that affects you. I don't think that, you know, and it's live. So, you know, whether it's, you're worried that, oh, I'm going to look like an idiot or whether you are concerned about how people are enjoying themselves. But at the same time, I think after doing that now, I'm, I feel more like, well, the stuff that I all thought was going to make people entertained wasn't. So I don't think that it really matters if I, I don't think I should change my GM style I should just, I think the only thing you really should do is just try to keep things moving so that you're not stuck there looking through, you know, your notes for 10 minutes at a time or something. But, 
it, it reminds me a little bit of when you're playing at like a convention game and somebody walks up to your table just to observe what's going on <laughs> and everybody tries to play really good or yeah. smart because there's somebody else watching you for a minute, you know. And so yeah. that makes me just think like the effect of Adam, you know, did, did you feel like that maybe that affected how you played knowing the people watching? I don't think it did really because I... I like worked in game stores for a long time and I've run so many, so many games like demo, you know, every time I do role play code, I'd run it in the store and, you know, and have people watching and stuff. So I, I think, I think I'm kind of numb to it. Honestly, I wasn't thinking about the audience at all during the whole session. I, I you know, so. me neither. Yeah. I think, I think it was mainly me and Deathblade were aware of the audience cause it was his channel and I knew yeah. it was his channel and I knew it was sort of my game. But um, but Adam, I, I've played with Adam before, and he played the way that he always plays. Like it just felt like you know a normal session with Adam and and Rob. I I haven't played with, but Rob seemed to you know Rob seemed perfectly at ease, and I didn't get the feeling <laughs> that he was uh you know that he was doing anything for the for the audience. Um, so I I think I think I think more, more of the pressure is on the GM because if the G the GM can look bad in a way that a player you know. You can just chalk it up. I'm playing a stupid character, so you know, I, you know I was supposed to do that. But like the GM is a little more pressure to be on the ball. Um, but I have to say, after a while, I did forget that it was being filmed so much so that I went to pick up a package and I didn't even bother to turn off my mic. And I'm sure people heard me. Like I, I discovered that I had uh, I had ordered some books and it snowed out, and the books were in a big pile of snow, and I had to rescue them. And I completely forgot that everything was being recorded, and I was just, I was just <laughs> trying to salvage my books before the pages got destroyed. So, yeah, oh, I, oh, I, it's a COD. Oh. My uh, credit card number is blah blah. blah. <laughs> what was that, Rob? Um, yeah, the, the the audience didn't bother me. I, I mean, I played live action, like I said, I played live action, ran live action event for ten years. I'm used to performing. Or playing in front of dozens of people, and then there's all the convention games I played. No, I, I played. I just picked the most interesting character that I could role play off the bat, and that was the fly with guy. Mm -hmm. and I didn't really figure the implication of the uh, fly with. You know, I thought, oh, this is neat, different. And then, you know, very shortly in, I realized it's a thing that pull people towards you from ten feet away. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean that that means the fly wrist is I can unnaturally extend the fly whisk and grab something ten feet away and there's a lot of things you can do with that. <laughs> yeah, you're Spider Man basically. And uh yeah, and on top of that, we all, a lot of us had super jumping powers too. I mean it it just raised the whole thing when you're when you're running a trap based adventure, having you know, what are effectively superheroes really really makes it a lot tougher to uh, well, present i accounted for traps. that though I, I accounted for the flight because i figured the four oh, okay. they, they, you guys were the manner of the four uglies and the four uglies they live in a world where people can fly so the traps yeah. the tra like that tra and you and you did you didn't trigger this because you never flew high enough for it to matter but that the area where the stones were crossing the water if you guys tried yeah. to just fly over the top of that there was a there was a golden net that was going to shoot uh -huh. out and and drop you into the water with the alligators. So, um, and, and there were other there were other mechanisms like that throughout the facility, uh, where if you if you flew up a certain height, 
poison needles would fire at you or, you know, different yeah. things would hit you. Now, having yeah. having having watched House of Traps, I was I was ready for the golden net. I was like wary of that being somewhere. <laughs> I was surprised when it didn't show up. But now I know why. What was that? So I, I, I have a question for you, Brendan. And, and this is kind of interesting because when clearly you, you all of you were playing in a live stream, right? Mm -hmm. So Rob and Adam were, were live streaming this game. And as a game master, whatever you said kind of went, right? And I think yeah. very often when people play games with traps, players become a little worried that a uh, game master is trying to quote unquote kill their characters. Right. And so I've been at a lot of face to face games where players will ask me, is that a real trap or did you just make that up to mess <laughs> with my character? Right. Mm. And so I've found that in face to face games, I will write down all the traps and I will account for them. It's <laughs> kind of like writing up a module yeah. so that I can hold up my notebook and go, no, it's in here. It's in the yeah. notes. I'm not like going after anyone. Now you guys were you, nobody could call you on that because a it was a live stream. But had, did you account for all those traps? Did you write them down that it was going to be exactly oh yeah, I, like this? No, I wrote down everything. I always do it that way, um, and I think I've sort of established with my players over time that credibility with that kind of stuff because I I have players in my group who will call you on that sort of thing. So. I, I always make sure that I, you know, I, I run things, that, you know, like that they're planned and especially with traps because a trap, the GM right. could just suddenly have a spear shoot out of a wall for no reason. And, yeah. and so I try, you know, and also that's the, like from the GM point of view, that's kind of what makes traps fun. If you're, if you're making it up as you go along to me, that doesn't really feel like a, that's not how I like to do traps. It just doesn't fit. No. And, and I think that's one of the things that I want to get across to like new game masters who might be listening to this podcast. And that is that traps are a very kind of like difficult part of the game where players, you need to have a certain level of trust with your players before they start believing that every trap that you have was actually accounted for. So yeah. I don't recommend to new game masters that they like start just throwing traps in here and there that aren't accounted for in the module. I think that's a, a basic mistake that, that, you know, kind of greenhorn game masters sometimes make, you know, well, by trying to add a trap somewhere and, you know, it becomes a complication or a character death that you might not want. And that people feel like somebody's being targeted, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to disagree in that. Okay. The problem is not the trap. The problem is it's like so much of anything that you put in a role-playing campaign that comes out of the blue. If you The players only dislike things that they feel that they could not have discovered. It comes out of the blue for no reason at all. Now, what you're describing is, is, is perhaps the mechanical example of, what do you mean? That, I mean, I didn't see anything, you know? <laughs> You know, and uh, I mean, players in my campaign know that I'm making passive uh, protection uh, protection checks at the very least, very low chance of them, with, unless they actively say that they are uh, looking for traps. Mm -hmm. And in which case, you know, uh, they 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 do. They do what's needed. I mean, they, you know, they, they describe how they're doing it, and and if they do it, they just if 
if I think their preparation is good enough, they will find the traps. So that yeah. that goes a long way of uh, of uh, overcoming that issue. Now, think- you know, the best uh, I'll have one example that you know I ran the Barrow Maze by uh, Galepsi, Greg Galepsi, mm-hmm. and uh, it's loaded with traps. And the players are suitably cautious, and uh, they've been finding a lot of traps. But in this one section, they decided to go right instead of left, and they managed to get to the end of the section uh, by going through a series of rooms and not using the passageway, where there were at least three pit, pit traps in there. And uh, so they got beyond the section, dealt with stuff, and they realized they had to go back and regroup, and they decided to go back. And when they go back, you know, they say, why are we going to go back to this room? We just go down these passageways. And so the first character uh, went down those passageways and, you know, at full speed and, of course, activate all the pit traps. And one of them I happened to roll as a bottomless pit trap. And he goes, (laughs) (laughs) the disgust and disbelief in his voice was like, bottomless? Rob, really? <laughs> and, you know, so I, I'm just giving that example that, you know, traps can be a source of frustration, even though that, uh, even though that, uh, you know, they trust you in everything, which is why, you know, when I run games, you know, I use traps very sparingly. I mean, I use them where they make sense to use them. Not as just a random feature of the dungeon, because because the last, you know, the big problem with traps, it's not that the players, even if you have the players trust you and everything, think what happened when they you load up a dungeon with traps. Think what's going to happen to the gameplay. The players will crawl down to a slow and check every single five foot or ten foot square of the dungeon. And this is what they do in live-action role-playing, too. They go into a building that we outfitted at essentially as a trapped dungeon. They'll, they'll send their best people around, and they're examining. They're doing the MI, you know, they're doing the Mission Impossible thing. You know, they'll, they'll tie a rope to them. They'll lean in and look, in, look around, feel around things. You know, and it, it, it takes a while to do all that stuff. So just realize you're going to load it up with traps. And the players are competent. That's your most likely outcome. That they're going to take a real long time getting through everything. Yeah, well, I think that comes down to logical trap placement. I mean, in this, in the dungeon we played the other night. Well, not the. I mean, call it a dungeon. I mean, but uh, it's, you know, there there were there were alternate corridors. You could tell the guards took. You know, like the archers that were in this adventure had a secret passage they used. So. You know, the traps were in places that made sense in the context of the campaign. They, It wasn't like, you know, if, if you have a dungeon, for example, and there's just this corridor that's lined with traps that people would have to walk down all the time, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, if the, you know, if the equivalent of that, you know, jumping stone trap was in a major throughway for the, the four uglies to use, it, it you'd be like, well, why is there a trap here? That's crazy. But every trap... We, we, we knew where to look for traps and we kind of knew where not to look for traps just from context. So it didn't, it, it wouldn't have, if this was an ongoing campaign, it wouldn't have crawled things down to a, 
to a halt or anything because we would have become overcautious. Let, let, let me ask this question real quick, and that is that when when it comes to the traps, and I think Rob made a really great point that a lot of the times if you have adventures with a lot of traps, games just bog down, right? Mm -hmm. And so like I kind of think of like two of horrors when they first ran towards we knew that it was an all-trap-filled dungeon, right? A lot, or played it on a tournament and thought it was pretty cool and kept like going through it as a dungeon crawl only to discover that it was full of traps, right? Yeah. Now everybody knows that adventure is full of traps. So they immediately slow down and you cannot play through that adventure in the original four-hour time <laughs> slot it was built for because nobody's trying to get through it. They're... They're going slow. So when when you made this adventure, Brendan, mm -hmm. and obviously like the players knew they were going to be playtesting a uh, adventure that had a bunch of traps in it, did you see Rob and Adam and those guys slowing down, or were mm -hmm. like? How I was do you expecting. I was expecting people to slow down, um, and I sort of saw this more as like a you know, like an Indiana Jones or like, and, and like uh, uh, Adam mentioned the movie House of Traps. I, I had sort of, I was taking inspiration from from those kinds of things where the the focus was going to be sort of going from trap to trap and, you know, finding your way around it. And so I was expecting it to be that way. Um, so I don't, I don't think people really slowed down more than I thought. In fact, Rob kind of was barreling through a lot of stuff in a lot of ways. He was charging right into danger. Um, and and so that kept things interesting and and i think you had a combination whenever whenever you have anything like this i think there's two personality types i think you have people that are gamblers and you have people that are like very cautious more like, more like chess players and i'm a gambler i will roll the dice happily and so if they're you know i'll walk down a corridor and not worry too much about the consequences um you you know as long as you have a good mix of people in the game i think uh, you know, you, you can still get the gamblers to step forward and do things. But even if they don't, you know, if, as long as the players are engaged and having fun, I think it's fine. Um, this this is about as trap-heavy as I would ever get. This was like an all-trap scenario, and I generally, if I have an all-trap scenario, it's it's not usually as elaborate as this. It's usually like like one little tomb, like a realistic tomb, and the entrance might be trapped, and there might be a trap towards the end somewhere. Um, but it'll be... I don't know, more more mundane feeling than this one felt. This one, I was giving myself a lot of freedom to emulate House of Traps. And so, um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think, I think with pacing, I don't know, what did you guys feel? Did you guys, did you guys feel like you were slowing down or did you feel like you guys were keeping a good pace? I thought it was a pretty good pace. I didn't, I didn't feel like we had any points in the session where we, you know, I mean, there is that feeling where everyone's over planning and, you know, you're like talking in circles. I don't, I don't think that happened during this session. No, I, I think we did pretty good. I mean, there were some parts I backed off just because I didn't want to hog the limelight all the time. <laughs> but uh, and I wasn't re really didn't have any good idea for, for, for certain sections. But, yeah, overall, it was pretty good. And the and I tried, and this is from a guy who doesn't like traps, <laughs> trap dungeons. And I tried to design it so that because I here's here's where the live stream definitely affected things. I knew we couldn't do a five hour game on the live stream, and you know it just wasn't. I I didn't want to be online 
on camera for five hours. I don't think anybody else did. Um, mm. So I, I designed it so that I felt it would be accomplished in between an hour and three hours. Um, and if the players got really lucky, they might manage it in 30 minutes if they're super, super clever and like make all the right decisions. Um, and I feel like that basically panned out. Um, you know, the, we, we, we pretty much got to the end of it. There was probably a little bit of epilogue to deal with, but, but we pretty much got to the end of things. So, um, but, but, but it did, but that did affect the design of the, of the scenario, the, 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 the fact that it was a live stream. Speaking no, of that, oh, go ahead, Rob. Uh, the only thing I would suggest for live streaming is use roll twenty. You got. You don't have to use minis. You don't have to use it like mini, but you could have used. You know, with roll twenty, you could have had a permanent handout with the with maps, or used the the roll twenty map to display the map the way you displayed it. But it would have been permanently up. Yep. Yep. And the other thing is, it, this is not about trusting people to roll the die. You can use roll twenty to roll the die, and the reason why you want to use roll twenty to roll the die because people can see what is rolled. That I agree with strongly. I think if we had a dice roller, it would have been better for the audience because they would have seen what people were rolling. On the roll twenty, I've just never adjusted to roll twenty as a GM. I've always been more of a theater of the mind GM. So I get what you're saying. I think the audience would certainly appreciate the imagery on the screen. But I think I think it would I think I would have difficulty running a scenario on roll twenty. Um, well, you, you you don't have to think of it like a map. You can just think of it as a whiteboard that you post something, post a picture to. Oh no no no! I get oh. what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I'm just saying I just have never taken to roll twenty. Is I, I like I've been uh, in uh, games with people on it, but okay. I, I just for some reason I just I just find sort of the Skype and the Google Hangouts approach. Uh, but I do, but they do have a dice roller for Google Hangouts, so I think that's something I would definitely incorporate. And I think you're also right. I just think I'm a little bit stubborn when it comes to the roll twenty stuff. Um, yeah, I, okay. I've never liked virtual dice either. I mean, I, 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 I always just trust my players to roll dice at their table. Yeah, but I, don't, Rob's I don't. Rob's making a more nuanced point than that. He's saying that it's better for the audience because they can see the dice rolls. That's true. Yeah. Them being able to see and, that and, in and this it, context, yeah. And it's better for the players. Look, I mean, we had a session when, I don't know, something was screwed up with roll 20. So we all rolled dice. And afterwards we talked, this is when we realized it. You know, when I roll a natural 20 and announce it, it is not the same thrill as you sitting in see. roll 20 and all of a sudden you see a natural 20 or a natural 1, you know, pop up. And and you know it, even though it's virtual, mm-hmm. seeing the dice is a more powerful effect than the fact that it's virtual or real. And just so you know that the dice rolling on roll twenty is tied to when you're a scientist, you can subscribe to a subscription service that will feed you random noise generated by quantum effects. People need they can't use computer generated algorithm for whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. They need a true source of random numbers. So this being the 21st century, there are people who, who have a small business where you can subscribe for X dollars a month to a source of random noise. Mm-hmm. So Roll20 did that. So their dice is based off, off the universe, which is funny because I have a friend named Tim who always rolls crappy. 
and we always tease him that the universe hates him because in this case it literally it has to be true because the the, the dice rolls are coming from the universe. Well, one thing I'd like to, I I do I actually do want to incorporate dice rollers into my game for a variety of reasons. Um, but but one of them is the one that you mentioned, which is I think it's a little more exciting if everybody sees the die result. Um, I, I agree with you on that. I like rolling dice though, so there's the I, that's the other part of the equation where I physically like rolling dice in my hand. Um, mm-hmm. But I've been you know like uh, the other the other hurdle is I run. Two of my games I run on Skype, and as far as I know, Skype doesn't have a dice roller that works on its interface, but I could be wrong on that. Um, the other game I do run on Google Hangouts, and they definitely have a dice roller, and so um, I've been contemplating bringing the dice roller in on that one. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think um, now does do, now just for informational purposes, Rob, is Roll Twenty something that is friendly with? uh youtube and live streaming or is it or would you have to do some sort of special uh setup in order to make that work uh you would have to do i would assume it would be like any other piece of software that you have on your i you would have to switch your video screen to your screen okay but uh yeah, that's a good people, question, Brendan. I don't know the answer to that. Because with live uh, I mean, streams getting more common, people must be doing that. I'm assuming, but I don't. I don't know the technical ins and outs of it. Um, oh, there's a wiki entry in the Roll Twenty wiki, so you can read up all about it. Okay, but I think what I definitely will do if we do another live stream, I will definitely have dice rollers for sure. Because I, I 100% agree with that. That uh, that for the audience to just hear me go like this and take my, they don't even know what kind of dice I'm rolling. They have, you know, no sense of what's going on there. And I'm just saying, oh, success or whatever. So uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, they have, there's something called XSplit they use with Twitch. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll give you the link to it so you okay. can read up on it. And it, that'll probably lead you to the uh, everything else you need to know. Um. But the other thing is that I was, uh, if, I, if I did another scenario, like I don't know if and when another live stream would happen, but if I did one, I'd want to try something like a mystery scenario that's a little more role play heavy and see how that goes and just get a sense of what different things work in the format. Because um, that's sort of like, I like traps and stuff, but my natural, my natural gaming style is more on the sort of NPC heavy, interaction heavy kind of scenario thing. Um, yeah, that, that's my thing too. I don't. I don't usually require maps for what I'm running. What was that? Uh, I was. I was going to ask a question about traps. You know, you were just saying that that usually you play NPC heavier modules rather than trap modules. In this particular adventure, you were to make traps that were based on old actual mouse traps. Yes. How did that? play into the play and the scenario that you guys went through so like you know when we first started the podcast some people were saying like no we didn't realize you know that that was a mouse trap and you know rob made a great point about like larps having that sort of a feel or that kind of encounter space but did did people realize that these were quote-unquote old school actual mouse traps 
I don't think anybody caught on to that except for the one. There was an obvious one where there, there were these alcoves with with like statues inside of them, and around the edge of the alcove was a, a hammer, like on a mouse trap, like that that band that uh -huh. comes down and kills the mouse, and it was lining the whole hallway. And when they walked in, spikes shot up the floor, and then the uh, the hammer got you when you were trying to walk walk through the spikes. And one of the players got caught on that. And and that was one of the mouse traps I saw. And I had never seen a mouse trap like that before, where, where you had spikes on the bottom and you had a hammer on top. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And so I decided to just pretty much pull it right in. Um, so it, it affected the design. And there were other traps where I took inspiration from the concept of the trap, even if it wasn't directly the trap itself. So there were traps that they didn't encounter that were in there. There was a... Um, so, so there was a trap where I had just like a big giant block that dropped on the characters. And the thing that the mouse trap provided me was the mechanical knowledge of how the trap actually was triggered and worked. Um, so there were little things going on where I found I was able to mention details about like them hearing things when the trap was triggered that I might not have been able to, to come up with on the fly before. Uh, but because I, was, I had been looking at these traps and... Uh, watching YouTube videos where somebody was putting them together and showing you how they worked, I, I had a much better sense of the mechanics of it. And, and so I thought that added, I guess, the verisimilitude to the, uh, mm -hmm. to the traps. Yeah. You had the, the details were definitely there. So you did a good job with that. But yeah, so they, they um, so yeah, so I, I mean, I don't know. I think, I don't think like, I think in terms of, whether it's a good idea to like go and look at old mouse traps and make traps from them. I, I don't know. I, th I think, I think what I learned from this was that YouTube is a resource for game masters has a lot of interesting areas where you can, you can find like, like I, I didn't grow up. Like I, I come from a long line of stonemasons and carpenters, but I know nothing about that myself. And, and so one of my weaknesses as a GM is just a lack of knowledge about how, Things are basically put together when it comes to those sort of things. And YouTube has been a really good resource for, you know, there are people that are more than happy to go on YouTube and show you how a door is made or how, how stairs are made or whatever. And when you're designing a complex or, you know, uh, you know, a type of architecture, you can, you can go to YouTube and find an inspiration. And so in this case, it happened to be mousetraps. Nice. Yeah, it's funny because I discovered that Mousetrap channel about a week before Brendan contacted me about it. It's like he sent me this email going, hey, there's this channel of weird mousetraps. Maybe that'd be cool role-playing. So I'm like, I've been watching that all week. And it's like, I don't know how, I don't even remember how I discovered it. It's not, that's something I'd like go and Google on, you know, hey, I want to watch the Mousetrap videos. But somehow I stumbled on it. So I have mice in the house that have been causing problems. And so I was uh, looking for... Uh, you know, I wanted to know what the best mouse traps were, and so I googled like most effective mouse trap, and some <laughs> and that YouTube channel came up, and and so that's that's how I ended up watching it, and then I just discovered, oh, these are actually interesting. Like I'm 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 yeah. learning something about <laughs> how people dealt with mice in the 1800s here. So, I, you know, I, I was I was intrigued enough by and and the channel is I think he's some kind of I don't know what the guy, you know, he, he's one of these people that it, he has a lot of sort of like uh, huntsman type things on the, on the channel where he, you know, mm -hmm. he's in with, he's, he's in nature doing different things. <clears throat> but he hit on this mousetrap idea and I guess that got popular. So the channel has a lot of, what he does is he, 
he takes old mousetrap designs from books from you know uh, from history and he reconstructs them or he buys antique mousetraps and 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 then tries to reconstruct them and use them or use the the antique mousetrap mousetrap itself so um but yeah it was interesting when, when you when you were first planning on running this like uh, adventure and doing like the live stream and stuff, um, the old school gamer in me really kind of thought back to in the '80s. There was this like third party publisher that put out uh, trap manuals called Grimtooth. Oh yeah, so, I remember like, that. They did the Grimtooth traps, and uh, like a few years ago, Goodman Games collected the eight Grimtooth trap games and put them together into like one big collection, and. Uh, what was cool about that book, the Grimtooth Traps book, was that they showed you all the mechanics of how the traps were supposed to work. And, you know, just when you first were talking about how you guys were going to be running this, it immediately made me think of that collection of trap books. With Some people love to run trap dungeons, and so that just made me think of that. So it's, in, it's interesting to me, Brendan, that as somebody who doesn't like to run trap dungeons, that a YouTube channel on mousetrap design made you create this dungeon and i think that's sometimes why going to youtube or checking other sources or exploring things that you don't usually think about as a game master are really worth your time because you suddenly present to your players a new style of game or a new style of play that they might not regularly see and I should say, I, I, I did uh, have the Grimtooth books, and the way I used them when I was running games is I would, I would look, I would, I wouldn't fill my traps with dungeon or dungeons with traps, but I might have a trap or two traps, and a book like that was a really handy resource for getting ideas or just you know inserting something. Um, so I, I, I never went full Grimtooth in my campaigns. I don't think my mm-hmm. players would have permitted me to do that in most of the games I was running. But, uh, but occasionally you could, you know, and, and there were other books too. I remember there was a D20 book of traps uh, that came out, oh man, it's probably like 16 years ago now. But um, but I remember, you know, the, so so I guess I've always had an interest in traps as a GM. I just use them sparingly, um, which I think, I don't know, I think most GMs tend to do. I think, you know, sort of like Rob is saying, there's a natural consequence to filling traps, you know, filling the world with traps. And, mm-hmm. and, and so you just learn over time, you have to kind of, stay your hand a little bit yeah i'm looking at this really old dungeon i made i only have one pit trap in the whole thing yeah it's a it's a powerful spice is what traps are so (laughs) yeah and i i've always found you know you know as long as there's different things that the players can interact with in a in a dungeon and you know traps are one but puzzles are another and you know there's I think, uh, you know, I've, I've never been super into traps being extremely lethal. I've been more into traps being interesting to interact with anyway. So, um, yeah, well, that, that's one qualifier on this session, too. This was a one-off session using characters that I made for this session and had no particular intention to use again. So if all three of my characters would have died, I wouldn't have been, you know, crushed. Whereas if I'd been playing in this campaign for months, then you threw me in this dungeon and, you know, boom, you're instantly dead. It's like, it's it's a very different thing. Yeah, this was very <laughs> consequence-free for me because it was a one-off, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, in terms of, like, game master advice and stuff, I think one of the tricks to when you have 
uh, when you do use a, a trap, and if, if your whole dungeon isn't full of them intentionally, I think one of the tricks to that is dropping some sort of a clue or giving the players like an awareness roll or an intuition roll that this is the only trap. Don't slow down the game, right? Yeah. So like, you know, when, when Rob was saying earlier that you can you can slow down a game with too many traps, saying like, it's obvious that this is the trap that they expect everybody to keep out. After this, you should be pretty safe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, or you make an awareness roll and like, you know, they're counting on this trap to work. There shouldn't be any others, you know. That'll help get a game moving again if, in case people are afraid that you're going to bog down an adventure. Yeah, and I think one other, one little trick I've used before is doing the old, this part of the dungeon is really kind of extra dusty. There's no tracks no one's been through here. And it's like, you know, lots of cobwebs and stuff. And you know, that way, you know, it's it's the area the monsters don't go because, you know, uh, it's it's the deadly part. Well, so, you know, that's, that's, that's one trick. I, I like that approach. It also ties with what Rob was saying, which is the, players sort of expect there to be tells of a trap so that it's not mm -hmm. just totally sprung on them by surprise um you know i think i think occasionally you can you can do that there can be a trap that's uh you know totally unpredictable but but you i think you want most of the traps to be uh something where you have a chance of observing something that would uh would would sort of reward a player who's paying attention um mm -hmm. because i think with traps the the what you're sort of engaging there is players who, uh, you know, at least for me, the thing I like about traps when I'm a player is I like that, you know, I, what I do before the trap is triggered matters. And, and so if I'm, yeah. if I'm looking on the ground for certain things, if I, if I, uh, if I'm testing the ground, you know, th that sort of thing, but, uh, but, but, but knowing what the tells are and not, and, and I think that's an important thing, like, you know, knowing like, but when you set the trap down, how somebody might possibly see it and and how they might miss it you know just so that when they when the players start asking questions you're not just making stuff up um but but yeah so so i don't know uh any other thoughts on the whole live stream thing like i i this was my first one so i uh i i i i, I had fun um but it was also it was different from a regular game it, it definitely felt different in some respects at the same time it kind of felt like a regular game too so uh you know yeah no i mean my, my big takeaway was to test your camera ahead of time on that service because i got a new camera and it's like oh it doesn't work with uh live streams great but uh <laughs> yeah i wish i'd tested ahead of time I think really the only thing you need to be aware of is what scenario that you're going to showcase during the live stream. You know, mm -hmm. it's not not everything we do in role playing is going to trans. It's going to hold an audience interest for what, how long was the live stream for? Like, for two, I think it was like a little under three hours, maybe. I can't. Yeah. No, so you want to make sure you contrive something that's interesting to play out in three hours and will play out in yeah. three hours. And it, you know, it. I. You read my writings on the RPG side. I believe that the whole point of RPG is to craft experiences. So, and that you know, it can reflect anything in the in in life or our imagination. You know, like a pen and paper holodeck. So, there are countless of interesting situations that can occur within a three-hour session. Yeah. And so, I wouldn't. You know, that that's the only thing I would have to further to say about it 
Yeah, I think I think one one advantage that I had here was that we sort of set up a scenario when we ran it, and obviously that does not happen in a typical campaign. In a typical campaign, the players decide if they're going to engage anything that they come across. Um, you know, they they are they're perfectly free not to go to the manor of the four uglies, and and so uh, I think for a live stream. You probably want to make sure that the players are going to the four uglies before the stream starts, or have a really great sandbox <laughs> prepared that you're willing to run. But, uh, um, but yeah, I, I, I uh, the, the other thing I was thinking about is, you know, I can run a regular game with very little preparation beforehand. I find um, in an ongoing campaign, but for a live stream, I felt the need to prepare uh, uh, more because. It just would it would have it would have crashed and burned in a whole different way than a normal session would have I felt and so um, so I think taking the time to prepare is definitely important in in this kind of a situation unless I don't know unless you like the spectacle of watching a GM fail that could I guess there's sort of an Andy Kaufman thing that could be going on there um, <laughs> anti gaming yeah but. Uh, but yeah, so so I don't know. I guess um I guess we've sort of explored the topic as thoroughly as we're going to. So we'll end it there, and uh, we're gonna try to do these like once a month, and we'll be on with a different topic, and hopefully uh, it's gonna be somebody else running something next time, so we'll get a different point of view and uh you know uh, hold you know hold hold different uh angle on things. And so uh, we've been talking about topics, and when we when we uh, clarified what that's gonna be, we'll announce it before the podcast. So. Uh, so, all right, so uh, we'll let you go. And um, also, uh, this coming week, uh, Adam and I will be back on with some more Babylon 5 stuff. And we're also going to be reviewing a movie called Reign of Assassins, which is an amazing wuxia movie. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's one of the best films to come out in recent years. And uh, unfortunately, it's not streaming for free on Prime, but uh, it is available there to rent, and it's available fairly easily on DVD and things like that. So definitely check it out if you if you want to be involved in the discussion. And until then, we will talk to you later. Bye.